This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Don't you just love it? Love what? Tiffany's. Isn't it wonderful? Do you see what I mean? How nothing bad could ever happen to you in a place like this? It isn't that I give a hoot about jewelry except diamonds, of course. Tiffany, the most storied jeweler in the country. The name alone evokes images of Audrey Hepburn in a black evening gown looking into the window of the famous Fifth Avenue store in Breakfast at Tiffany's and flawless diamond engagement rings in the iconic robin egg blue box. Different images are evoked by the name Costco, warehouses, bulk sales of household staples, and deals for members only. So what happens when Costco starts selling diamond engagement rings using the word Tiffany? Well, Tiffany sues for trademark infringement, and an eight-year legal battle follows until this week when Tiffany and Costco reached a settlement. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, tell us about the legal dispute. So Costco was selling engagement rings that featured what is often referred to as a Tiffany setting. And by that, they mean the diamond is raised above the ring band in sort of an attractive setting. It was something that was created by the founder of the Tiffany chain, a gentleman by the name of Charles Tiffany. And so it's been known for over 100 years as the Tiffany setting. And Costco advertised their engagement rings as featuring a Tiffany setting. And Tiffany, the jewelry store, objected to that and filed a lawsuit back in 2013. And Costco claimed that the word Tiffany had become a generic term. This actually went to a jury who came back with a huge verdict. Tell us about the trial judge's ruling. So the judge in the district court granted summary judgment of liability against Costco and in favor of Tiffany, holding that the use of the Tiffany trademark constituted both trademark infringement and counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is a fairly serious finding under the Lanham Act, but did not make any finding with respect to the damages for those violations of the Lanham Act. So a jury trial was held specifically to determine damages. So at the start, the jury is told that Costco has already been found liable for trademark infringement and counterfeiting, and now it's up to you, the jury, to determine how they should be punished with respect to monetary damages. And that jury awarded $21 million to Tiffany for this counterfeiting and trademark infringement. It's appealed to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit reverses. Why did the Second Circuit reverse? So the Second Circuit felt that the judge had overstepped her function by granting summary judgment. The Second Circuit felt that there were genuine issues of material fact that had, as a matter of law, to be presented to the jury to decide and could not be decided by the judge. And fundamentally what this means is the Second Circuit felt that a reasonable juror might have thought that the use of the term Tiffany referred to the setting and not to the jewelry store. In other words, that the ring did not originate from the Tiffany jewelry store, but rather referred to the type of setting for the engagement ring. 
And it was up to a jury to therefore make the decision, and the judge overstepped her bounds by making the decision for the jury. So Tiffany has always defended its brand zealously. Did it surprise you that they decided to settle with Costco? It did. But the stakes were much higher on the retrial coming back from the appellate court. And that new trial in front of a jury was set for this coming October 2021. At that point, it is possible that a jury could have returned a verdict in favor of Costco, which in essence meant that the term Tiffany had become descriptive. And at that point, if that finding were upheld on appeal, Tiffany's very valuable trademark would have overnight become, if not valueless, close to valueless, in that any retailer using that particular type of setting for an engagement ring could then advertise using the Tiffany trademark. So it was a very high-risk situation for Tiffany at that point with very little reward. And so it made perfect sense to choose to settle, especially if Costco had agreed to stop using the, the term Tiffany. But doesn't this still leave open then the question of whether or not a jeweler can use the term Tiffany setting? It absolutely does leave that decision open. But that's one of the things that Tiffany probably wanted to get out of the settlement. Now, the funny thing about trademark settlement, June, is that you can call them confidential. But by looking at the practices of the defendant sometime after the settlement, you can pretty much figure out what the settlement was. So now if you go into a Costco store and you no longer see the word Tiffany being used in connection with their engagement rings, you can pretty much be assured that the settlement agreement required them to stop using the word Tiffany. And if that's what the settlement was, then I think it was a good deal for Tiffany. And the reason I say that is Tiffany continues to have leverage over anybody wanting to use the Tiffany name. Whereas if they'd gone to trial and they'd lost, they would have lost all leverage against these other companies in the marketplace. As long as there's this possibility that the Tiffany mark cannot be used and any use would be counterfeiting or trademark infringement, then that gives you a pretty big stick to wield as the lawyers trying to enforce the Tiffany trademark. Tiffany switched law firms on the matter a month ago. Could that have made a difference? It certainly is interesting timing. Sometimes by changing law firms like that, you get a different perspective on where you stand. It is from time to time possible for a law firm that has been fighting it out day to day in the trenches to develop blinders so that they've got just monovision and they can see no path forward except through litigation. Whereas you bring in a new firm looking at the situation afresh and they might come up with a different solution that gets the client to where they want to go. You see this quite frequently in the trademark area. Trademarks are one of these funny areas of the law where both clients and lawyers become irrational because they're personally attached to the trademark. And here, it is not just any trademark. It is the name of the founder of the company, Charles Tiffany. And so you often see irrational decisions going on. This lawsuit's been going on since 2013. That's eight years. Years. That's phenomenal for a trademark lawsuit and tells you a lot about how personally the parties took the litigation. And that probably spilled over to the lawyers and bringing in new lawyers to look at things fresh probably helped Tiffany a lot. There have been so many brand names that were trademarked that went on to become generic terms because of their popularity. Aspirin, Escalator, Taser. 
just to name a few. What can Tiffany do to stop that from happening to its trademark? I think in this situation, it's a very challenging legal problem for Tiffany. The need to continually police the mark, which is the phrase we use in trademark law, is ongoing. It's continuing. You do not have to sue every single person who uses the word Tiffany, but you do have to show a regular pattern of chasing after people who are infringing the mark. And this is what Xerox has done so well for decades and decades now. And although we as lay people may sometimes think of Xerox as having become genericized in the law, it really has not because of the enforcement actions Xerox took. And Tiffany's in the same bind here. It's going to have to constantly police this mark in order to preserve it, whether or not they have to engage in this sort of multi-million dollar legal fee litigation lasting eight years is probably overkill. But this one sort of got away from them. I assume they thought at the outset Costco would back down and it could be settled relatively quickly, but it did not, and Costco did not. And you can sort of see why. I mean, Costco's trying to sell engagement rings. If the guy comes home from Costco and shows his fiance this lovely engagement <laughs> ring that's branded a Tiffany setting, that's one thing. If he comes home in a Costco box, I mean, could you imagine? I'd love to see the face of the bride <laughs> when she's told that her diamond engagement ring comes from Costco. That little extra branding from Tiffany really helps. And so there's going to be a constant temptation in the marketplace for people selling diamond engagement rings to try to use the term Tiffany, and then point to the setting of the diamond as allowing them to do so. And so Tiffany's going to be under continuous pressure to defend this mark. We don't know what will happen in the end, but it's going to be a costly exercise for Tiffany. I have to say, in researching this, I was surprised at some of the names that I thought were generic that were actually brand names and trademark to start out with, like Kleenex, Taser, and even TV Dinner. It's an interesting part of branding in general is that you are the first to market with a product and the trade name you assign to the product is so appropriate that you actually put it at risk of becoming genericized. Aspirin is the classic example of this. It was the only product like that at the time and people simply started referring to headache medicines as aspirin. Same with tissue paper. They were relatively quick to the marketplace with this concept. Perfect trade name. And people started using it, as we tend to do, in a genericized way. Tiffany is a little bit different. It is a subset of the consumer world that buys engagement rings. And I think it's a little bit harder to make that analogy to Kleenex or Aspirin or Xerox. But that said, from having done a lot of jewelry cases over the years, you do hear the people who are knowledgeable about this area always referring to that setting as a Tiffany setting. Fascinating as always, Terry. Thanks so much. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. Carrie Dunn spent decades at the very top of the New York legal profession, making millions of dollars defending Wall Street banks and global corporations. The 63-year-old was a senior partner at Davis, Polk & Wardwell, one of New York's most prestigious and profitable law firms. But the 63-year-old decided to leave his elite law firm to return to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, where he had his first job after law school. And as Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance's general counsel, Carrie Dunn may have found the biggest case of his career 
investigating former President Donald Trump and his company. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Greg, describe the kind of work he did at Davis Polk. Kerry Dunn, he spent three years as a baby prosecutor, an assistant district attorney (laughs) under the legendary Robert Morgenthau from 1984 to 1987, which is where he met another baby prosecutor at that time, Cyrus Vance Jr., and then left in um, 1987 to take a, a position at Davis Polk. He interviewed with Robert Fisk Jr., Uh, who's a legendary figure in his own right. Uh, Bob Fisk was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District during the Clinton administration and then became, he's not as well known as the other Whitewater prosecutor, but he was the first special counsel or independent counsel uh, appointed to investigate President Bill Clinton's role or whatever his connection was with the dubious real estate transactions that became to be known as Whitewater. And um, eventually he was replaced by Ken Starr, and we all know how that movie ended. Yes, we do. Uh, So um, anyway, Bob Fisk, one of the interesting things about Kerry Dunn is when he he said this in a testimonial to Fisk or when he was given an award a few years ago that just while he was interviewing with Fisk, he thought – if they offer me a job, I want to take it. I want to work for this guy and do whatever he wants me to do. This was back wow. in 1987, and it became almost a 30-year career at Davis Polk. Was he a litigator? Did, if was, you're at a firm like Davis Polk, I take it you have a lot of corporate clients. Uh, yes, very much so. And uh, right, it's one of the largest, you know, corporate. It's big law, the definition of big law, a huge law firm, a lot of corporate work for Wall Street banks as well as just large global corporations. And Dunn worked his way up. What I found interesting about him is he didn't become necessarily a star litigator, the guy you want in the courtroom for the big case. He did that, but a, a search of his Pacer court files, and hopefully the, the listeners understand what that is, just a, a TikTok of the cases he was involved with and appeared in court, was fairly heavy in the 1990s, but started petering out in the early 2000s when he became like a managing partner and started devoting more of his time to managing the law firm. It was also during that period uh, in the late 90s where he devoted a lot of his time to efforts that were not billable hours. Bob Fisk you know, was appointed uh, to lead a commission in the 1990s to clean up the mess or at least to come up with a solution to the problem of courts being basically overrun with drug crimes. And like, as you remember, the 1990s was a terrible time in the country, but particularly in New York City for drug crimes. And so when you talk about drug crimes, you have a wide variety extending from notorious bad actors and traffickers who kill people and are involved with cartels and need to be tried in the federal court system or in the state court system and put away for a long time, all the way down to, you know, sad cases of people who are addicted and then, you know, break into a car and steal the radio so they can get their $100 fix that night. And, you know, the system in the 1990s lumped them all together. And uh, they devised under Bob Fifth's direction, uh, Kerry Dunn was his, basically his general counsel for that, wrote a report suggesting the creation of a whole new tier of courts uh, for these low-level basically sad, addicted case offenders so that they could, instead of being thrown in jail, could be given, if you know they passed you know, muster, basically the opportunity to come clean, beat their habit, and return to you know, society as you know, productive you know, people and, uh, and not have to go to jail for 10 years because they did something really stupid when they were high. And this became very successful at relieving the burden on the New York State drug system of all the huge you know, amount of these cases that were clogging the system. And also, just in terms of doing a good thing, basically separating people who did not need to be put away for many years and allow them a chance to redeem themselves and clean up their act. And it became a model for many 
many other states to pursue. So Kerry Dunn was instrumental in basically putting this paper together. The judge who asked Bob Fist to to do this was so impressed by Dunn that she named him to a couple of subsequent commissions, one of which was aimed at providing legal services to so-called indigent people. Now, we all know that if you are accused of a crime and you're poor and you have no access to a lawyer, a a public defender will be appointed to represent you. That's criminal. There's like so many cases, civil cases, where somebody's been wronged or accused of something and they can't afford like a real lawyer, you know, uh, so they represent themselves and, of course, lose because they don't even know what they're doing in court. And Kerry Dunn headed up a commission that sort of came up with a solution of providing free legal services to people who didn't couldn't afford it. So at least they could get some professional representation in court in a civil case. So that's yet another example of what he did to sort of like improve the court system in New York. Those are not billable hours. That's stuff that doesn't get him. Pro bono. Yes, absolutely. And at one point, he was president of the Manhattan Bar Association. So I spoke to uh, retired Judge Barry Kamins, who had served with Kerry Dunn on some of these uh, and and helped out significantly on some of these commissions. And uh, because I'm not a lawyer, I thought, well, why is it a big deal? Every biographical sketch of Kerry Dunn says he was president of the New York City Bar. And he said, no, that's significant because of how much time and effort he put into improving the system uh, to, you know, basically good causes that uh, for him as a senior corporate lawyer to take this on and throw himself at that and continue some of the work he was doing is significant. Uh, Judge Kamen's told me that he, you could look at Kerry Dunn as a guy who had three careers. First, as a prosecutor, second, as a corporate litigator, big money, you know, big representative money. for, you know, Wall Street banks and global corporations. But finally, as head of the New York City Bar and as someone who basically for the industry of lawyers in New York really contributed a tremendous amount of time and energy. Dunn's been recognized, you know, and given awards for all the amount and time and effort he's put into pro bono work. Um, but that's something that someone like me who writes about this stuff for Bloomberg News, it was not on my radar screen. I write about, you know, the companies and the banks that get charged with something and who defends them, et cetera. So this is a significant part of his career. And now he's come full circle. He's back, you know, working with the prosecution team in what could eventually be like the most significant case of his life. What I found interesting is that he said that his proud moment was not all his Wall Street work, but his pro bono defense of a Bronx resident. Yes, that's right. So there was a murder in Brooklyn in the summer of 2001, and uh, a guy named Lonnie Jones was identified by an eyewitness as, you know, someone who shot like a gang leader or something. And it went to trial, and this, you know, key government witness testified against him, bang, 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 guilty, you know, and then sent away. A group of Davis Polk lawyers, and every large law firm has people dedicated to pro bono work. And a couple of them, including someone who's now a senior official of the Justice Department, concluded that, you know, this key witness was lying and that there were a couple of other witnesses who had not been contacted who could refute that testimony. And so they basically won the right for retrial to get the original conviction thrown out. And at the retrial, uh, they brought in uh, Kerry Dunn, you know, uh, again, a senior trial lawyer at Davis Polk to do the arguments. They didn't do it themselves. And, you know, he did it effectively and won an acquittal. And he said he told the Village Voice this. There was a great story in the Village Voice from, you know, 15 years ago on this. And he said that no matter what I do, this will probably be the most important thing I ever did as a lawyer. It was very a very touching remark for a guy who has, yes, made millions of dollars for his corporate work. So his demeanor was described as mild-mannered, but Judge Kamen said that he has tremendous charisma. 
I guess the mild-mannered description, and I talked about this with my editor so much, is more like um, in response to the Trump organization's lawyers, I, I think quite rightfully are trying to make the case that this is a political, you know, elected Democrats in New York State are going after the president. So they're trying to cast doubt on the veracity or the legitimacy of the charges. And instead of engaging, and this is to uh, the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr.'s credit, instead of engaging them directly or having a press conference outside the courthouse to fight back at them, he's taken a guy who's really perceived as apolitical, you know, made some modest contributions to Democrats over many years, but not many. He's not a big political player and a guy who's not likely to get hot and bothered and angry and fight back fire with fire like a cable TV <laughs> talk show host or something. So I think that's what the, the mild manner meant and so unflappable. And you heard that in the Supreme Court argument that he did. He was unflappable, but very convincing. His tone was moderate. So, And actually, the Supreme Court thing is, is hugely significant. Um, as you know, there were not one but two visits to the Supreme Court because the Trump organization, again, exercising its rights, you know, fought the idea of uh, allowing a grand jury to subpoena the uh, now former president's tax records. And think about this. You've got Donald Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, and, and also, you know, Noel Francisco of the Solicitor General's Office of the U.S. government arguing that, you know, you what you could end up doing if you allow the Manhattan District Attorney to do something like this, you could basically empower all 2,300 county prosecutors across the country to go, you know, wreak mayhem on any president, including Joe Biden now or something. So uh, they introduced this worst case scenario. And the Supreme Court justices, you know, take that seriously. And so you could have, you know, Vance himself standing up there. You need someone from the office. Right. Uh, sometimes people who don't have a lot of experience, parties that don't have a lot of experience at the Supreme Court, engage a professional, you know, lawyer like Walter Dellinger, whom we quoted in the article, who has lots of experience arguing before the Supreme Court. But Vance, to his credit, made the right decision. It had to be someone from his office making this argument. And it could have been a line prosecutor, but a line prosecutor is always already committed to a case. When you're a, a prosecutor and you've you know gone this far, there's a certain amount of investment uh, in this. Someone like Dunn and all the work he's done for legal reform in New York State is not someone who could be described either as a partisan elected official or a prosecutor who's so dug into a case that he can't see the bigger picture. He was actually the perfect guy to put in front of the Supreme Court. And even though he'd never argued before the Supreme Court before, he was very well briefed by the team, you know, and was able to engage with the justices. And here's another thing that when you're Appearing before the Supreme Court, particularly for the first time, uh, it's not uncommon for lawyers, you know, to start overacting because this is like the Super Bowl and they're there on the field <laughs> and uh, you've got the nine justices right there, although I think it was a Zoom call. But you know what I mean. Yeah, There's yeah. still that like high pressure of like, oh, my word, I'm right here in front of the Supreme Court. So that can affect not in a good way your presentation because you tend to be yeah. more voluble or overly demonstrative. And um, if you listen to Carrie Dunn's presentation, it was, you know, uh, it was as though these were just nine local New York State judges whom we'd known. He was very direct. 
uh, mm-hmm. listen to them, respond to them, do not start like bloviating about, you know, this so principle it was a, or that He principle. was a impressive and a, the opposite of seculos. So seculo uh, does what he does and he does it well. This was a very different approach. Yes. Right. So he's in this law firm where he's he basically can do whatever he wants, right? He's a senior partner. So why does he decide to, is he taking a leave? Is that what it is? From no, his... what, no, I think he, he decided, first of all, you know, like in investment banks as well, uh, at a certain point in law firms, you know, they you, you don't keep holding these full-time, highly paid jobs forever. At a certain point, you know, you become a senior part or whatever. Right. Like Bob Fisk himself, who's age 90, uh, is still attached to Davis Polk. But of course, mm-hmm. he's not in there working all the time. Yeah. But he's, you know, so there's a way of sort of, you know, stepping back from the firm. And he uh, had known Cy Vance Jr. for a long time. And Vance was beginning his third term as district attorney, and it's it's normal every four years for the senior staff of an elected official like that to turn over. And, you know, after his first term, the first general counsel stepped down, and after the second term, the second general counsel stepped down, and he tapped Kerry Dunn. And I, I think, I don't know this, but I, it certainly appears as though he was ready for a new challenge. He'd done everything he could do uh, at the law firm. He'd already given back a lot through the New York City Bar Association, and here's, you know, somebody he's known for a long time who asked him to be general counsel. Little did he know who's about to step into, like, this cauldron, not just this case about the Trump organization, but Harvey Weinstein 2.0. You know, he, he started in January of 2017, but he agreed, and the press release went out, like, November 2nd, 2016. In other words, before the election, when most people uh, thought Hillary, Hillary Clinton was going to, going to win, he accepted the job. So um, this investigation didn't really begin until, you know, the whole business with Michael Cohen and the payment to the porn star and the federal case, which revealed that the Trump organization, at least in the instance of Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels, had kept inaccurate books and records, presumably for the purpose of disguising, you know, what this money was being paid to Michael Cohen, uh, when in fact it was because, you know, Michael Cohen had paid money out of his pocket to this adult film actress. So Cyrus Vance is leaving at the end of the year. Alvin Bragg, the Democratic candidate for Manhattan DA, is on track to take his place, assuming he wins the election. Will Dunn stay or go? He's been with Vance now for, uh, this will be his fourth year. And yes, since Vance is leaving at the end of the year, the question is whether or not he'll stay. Because he's Vance's guy. He's not like a career professional in the office. So it'll be interesting to see. Because he he holds the title of general counsel. Alvin Bragg, I presume, would want his own general counsel. Mm -hmm. However, Bragg has stated publicly, because he's been asked about this, that he has no plans to change the team. You know, he doesn't. And that's a wise thing to say. Like, you wouldn't broadcast that now anyway, even if you felt that way. You wouldn't want to shake something up, but just let them go. I do think, assuming or... Or if Bragg does, in fact, win the election in November, then I would imagine in later that month there'll be some conversations between Bragg and some senior, I guess, for lack of a better term, political appointees of Vance, personal appointees like Kerry Dunn and like Mark Pomerantz, who is also someone who comes from the world of big corporate law and who has you know, signed on temporary basis to be a prosecutor in this case against the Trump organization. So that will be interesting to see you know, at the end of the year, whether or not, you know, these two people who are important, you know, to the prosecution stay on. Having said that, in the case of Kerry Dunn, you've got a team of line prosecutors who've been working on this for a couple of years. You know, they didn't argue before the Supreme Court, but they're fully immersed in the case. And when, let's assume that Alan Weisselberg, who has been charged, goes to trial, they're the ones who are going to be doing the prosecution, not Kerry Dunn. Has there been any movement 
As far as we, we talked before about the Weisselberg indictment, has there been any movement or any move to indict anyone else as we expected? If there is, it's not visible. So I covered the uh, investigation of Special Counsel Robert Mueller for a couple of years from 2017 into 2019, and we talked about this a lot, and particularly early on, but this continued were accusations, mostly from Republicans, that you know the Mueller team was leaking, and of course they weren't. There were no leaks at all from that, to the great frustration of me and everyone else who <laughs> covered this. There was nothing to get no out of that leaks. black box. There have been similar accusations about the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, um, and to be fair, there it's much more likely for local prosecutors, elected officials to leak than it is for federal prosecutors who are appointed and not, you know, don't need to curry favor of the public. And, you know, there's been accusations of that. At the same time, I think there's been a heightened awareness. I, I think Vance's office knows that they have no margin for error. So they've been very careful about this. They do not want leaks to go out. They do not want to give like fuel to the fire, you know, that the Trump organization's lawyers will 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 exploit if it becomes clear that they are leaking stuff. Uh, so that's a long-winded preamble to answer <laughs> your question, which is that, um, you know, I'm sure they're continuing to work on this uh, and in several directions. One is that um, Weisselberg, and this has been the strategy, they would like to get him to think this through and decide that he'd rather help them and minimize his uh, you know, potential time. The indictment against him and the Trump organization um, is well beyond just a, you know, an accusation of some, you know, uh, you know, poor decisions in terms of taxes by Weisselberg. It in some ways is a blueprint for like the, the prosecutors showing their hand like, Many people did this at the Trump Organization. This was standard practice. It wasn't as though Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, as alleged, is like a, a bad apple or a rogue or gone off the reservation to feather his own nest. It's more a suggestion that this, there are many executives at the Trump Organization um, did this. So it's quite likely that you know other senior executives, not named Trump, but other senior executives are you know who maybe got a car uh, or a reduced rate apartment uh, and did not include that as a material benefit on their uh, taxes, um, you know, are concerned that they might get charged similarly. So I, I think it's fair to assume that, you know, the wheels are in motion if there are any other senior executives there. Now, the senior executive everyone cares about, the former president, Donald J. Trump, that's, uh, you know, again, it's, you know, if you read the indictment, you know, it's hard to believe that he probably didn't, you know, get some benefit like that himself. However, he was not the CFO. So it could be that, you know, uh, these benefits were spread around. And if Weisselberg was the, you know, the genius behind it uh, and Trump can say like, hey, you know, he, <laughs> he told me it was OK, that's a, you know, that's that's a defense. So that's why the pressure uh, is being brought by the DA's office on Weisselberg is because, you know, he's the key guy. Uh, so, you know, I think I think Donald Trump has or would have if, if you know, things stand as they are now, some defense against the charge that uh, he should have, you know, maybe you could get him just pay back the taxes that he owes, but he would be able to blame or at least say, you know, my CFO, you know, who's the guy who's been doing this for decades, said it was okay, so, or something like that. Yeah. And on a personal note, he's known for his workout regime and playing in a rock band. He goes to the gym regularly, and this is another sort of in, informal legacy, you know, something that he learned from his mentor, Bob Fisk. Fisk, uh, who's 90 years old, 
way before it was fashionable in the 1970s and 80s, stayed in shape. He ran marathons. You know, he played tennis uh, and did all sorts of stuff. And I think it's uh, and it used to be a hockey player. Um, wow. And would sometimes bring his ice skates and go play <laughs> hockey, you know. So I think um, that's one of the things Dunn realized is in order to be able to do everything the way Fisk could, it, you have to be in shape and you have to, you know, take care of your body. So there's that. Um, so he goes to the gym and uh, and works out pretty regularly. The band is funny. You can look it up online if you're interested <laughs> in, you know, corporate law rock. <laughs> you know, there are fundraising uh, I didn't know this world existed, but there are uh, fundraisers where, you know, the New York you know, City Bar Association, for example, somebody will bring together, you know, a bunch of rock bands consisting of not just the partners like Carrie Dunn, but, you know, the guy from the accounting department or, you know, someone and all for good cause. But also all these people, even the ones without hair, could let their hair down, uh, live out that dream that got sidetracked from when they went to law school. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.